intense pain is a wonderful thing, Gene Okerlund. Your life flashes before your eyes. Things that are the most important to you become crystal clear. Look at this. You start to begin to learn the meaning of life. Last week when they stuffed me in that ambulance and I looked across and I saw Flair, Sting, Woman, Bagwell, and myself, I realized that we were people brought together, not by philosophy, but by necessity. And I started to think, New World Order, New World Order, where have I heard that? And I remembered in the good book it says when the New World Order is put into place, it signals the beginning of the end of time. Well, WCW is our world. It's where we live and breathe. And if you want to destroy it, Hogan and the Outsiders, you've already made a mistake that jumps off the page. You're going to take a baseball bat to a horseman. Finish the job because there's one rule of gang fighting. See, we are the original gang, and we're the most vicious in all of professional wrestling history. They send one of yours to the hospital. You send one of theirs to the morgue. Hello, my name is Bob Bamber. Welcome to the Wrestling 20 Years Ago podcast, going back in the time machine to December of 1996 of Volume 5 this month's show. Six volumes for you this month. Volume 1 takes the WCW looking at Starcade. Volume 2 takes the WWF looking at the latest in your house. Volume 3 to ECW looking at Holiday Hell. Volume 4 to UFC looking at UFC Ultimate Ultimate 1996. And Volume Number 6, our End of Year Awards. We're here for Volume Number 5, our End of Year Review show. Take at the end of the other shows, which is why you'll, you'll, you'll uh, be able to street line up for guests on those shows in this part as well but for this first chunk of the show i'm being joined by del muir hi bob uh we're here to discuss wcw and then later on we'll be joined by other people discussing the uh wwf and ecw we, we do an end of year review thing where ufc is concerned on on that part so that won't occur here um del i think it's probably worth framing wcw by talking about where they were kind of prior to may because you mm. get to the end of the year and it's very easy to forget that for the first five months of the year ecw was uh, wcw was a very different place yes um very different in the sense that the word I've got written down here is directionless. Would that be fair to say? Uh, I think it's a half, but certainly fair. I don't think you can argue with that in any means, whether it's booking, whether it's on-air production, whether it's what they were spewing out compared to what they could do just a mere six, nine months later. Yeah, I mean, you look at the title picture and you look at... You know, Flair won it on the eve of 1996, then Savage won it in January, then Flair won it in February, then Giant won it in April. You're like, what is going on here? This whole musical chairs thing with a title. Ultimately, of course, just to attempt to get it back on Hulk Hogan, which they eventually did, but in, in different circumstances for what they were planning. Um, they just didn't know what they were doing. You know, there was... You know, the, the fallout at the end of 95 to go back a while and those, just those title changes and you were like, where are you going with this? Um, and the, you know, this was also again, it, it feels like January 96 feels like a long time ago now because this is a time before Mysterio and those guys were really rocking and rolling. <laughs> so the pay-per-view quality wasn't as reliable as it has been the last six months. But also you were just like, what are you trying to achieve? And, yeah, we, we we discussed it at length on um, on the end of year review show, or the end of year award show. Sorry, um, 
but uncensored was probably in amongst all that was probably a <laughs> as good a sign as any uh, for a promotion that didn't really know where they were going a batshit crazy show that ended with a two on eight main event in a three tiered four sectioned cage that didn't really do anything um if there was ever a sign that the company needed a shot in the arse it was that I think the main event of Uncensored pretty much sums up the only plausible theory I can come up with with what they were thinking in the they kind of spring some well, spring it into summary WCW at this point because the only theory that's plausible is if you throw enough shit it's a hummel stick and it's like, well, we'll book that main event. Well, what if we had it in a cage? Right, that's good, that's good. We'll write that in. What if we had Hogan and Savage teaming up? Right, that's good. Now, well, we need about another four people to fit that. We'll make it six. We'll make it eight. Well, what are we going to do with the title? Because the title's not... It's just like, there was so many things getting through at something. And it did come on to something later in the year, but it, the, the first half of... The first half of 96, it was just as if, just throw everything in, throw the kitchen sink at it, and something will work. Eventually it did, but by God, it took them half a year to find it out. And nobody epitomised that struggle more than Hulk Hogan. Um, A guy that, early on this year, you know, I talk about directionless, Hogan felt kind of near the top of that. The whole thing of, and God, I mean, remember, you know, the whole thing with, you know, Booty Man, whatever it was called, turn on him. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wasn't called Booty Man at that point, whatever it was called. Turns on him, inevitably. Jimmy Hart inevitably turns on him. Of course he does, because that was the only, you know, because there was no other way around that. And in February, all of a sudden, Hogan's realigned with, with Booty Man, because, well, why not? We had those string of matches, Hogan, Savage, and Booty Man against God knows who else in the force from the, of the horsemen of the Dungeon of Doom. And, you know, we'll come on to it in a minute regards what, what would have happened, but it's not, it's not that crazy to think that without the NWO, Hulk Hogan right now would have been running out his WCW contract and would have been without a, uh, a wrestling gig in 1997 because he was costing him a lot of money and I think the all signs point to the fact that Hogan was probably not if he if he was at the start of the year, signs pointed towards there being coming a point where Hogan would stop paying for himself. I think certainly during the first half of the year, as much as Hulk Hogan, quote unquote, had a name, I think it was more a name out with the wrestling world. I, I just don't think there was much left for him. Um, you could see that with the matches that he was getting put in. You could see that with the the turning of his allies and then the realigning of certain allies. And it's like they were trying to think, well, we've got him on this contract. We've got his name. We've lost the fan fairy bringing him in and making this name for ourselves. What do we do now? It's it's like when you finally get that goal, how do you how do you expand on it? And they they kind of done that for late ninety four. The early plans were there. Ninety five was pretty much the same as the beginning of ninety six. Where it's just like we've got him there. We'll put him in TV. What we're we going to do with him? We'll work that out. And as I say, it just took them a while to kind of hit something that stuck. Yeah, um, and I, you know, it kind of stretches back in 95 as well, but 
you know, I, I think a, a lot of people looked at Hogan's run and went, well, the character was getting stale. I'm not convinced it was. The character was getting, well, okay, the character was getting stale, but I'm not convinced it was inevitable. I think the character was getting stale because they were out of compelling opponents for it. Um, and when they kind of took him away from television in April with a viewpoint he was going to take three, four months off and then come back and beat Giant for the title, which obviously happened, but just slightly different to how they planned. There was no like, oh god, this is a big miss. There was no thought that Hogan being away was going to dramatically have a negative impact on WCW. Um, I don't think we ever really got to find out whether that was true or not. There was only one pay-per-view between um, Hall and Nash arriving, um, uh, sorry, between that and Hall and Nash arriving. So it's not like we ever got this big long run of pay-per-view buy no. rates being down or anything like that. Um, ratings kind of were what they were. Um, and then yeah, and then we, you know, Nitro moves to two hours, and I think, I mean, Dale, you sat through all of those. I think it would also be fair to say that Nitro, for a long while, struggled with that transition. Um, but it almost didn't matter because Scott Hall and two weeks later, Kevin Nash turned up. Thankfully, um, something else that affected that transition as well was obviously the departure of Gene for that kind of time as well, because that was a big part of the the Nitro format and certainly now that he's back we notice that a lot more when you have a match you then get Gene that can help push a storyline that can help get the guys over that you want to get over and you want to kind of build these stories and Gene's an integral part of that and they missed him as well as Hogan at the same time and they did kind of find themselves floundering a bit Dallas the specifically the six weeks between Scott Hall arriving and Bash at the beach. Has there ever been a better run of, you know, weekly wrestling television? I know that's a relatively new thing, but just in terms of six or seven segments, you want to include the pay per view. Looking back, I would say you're you're talking what? It's really only about three years since there's been such a thing as weekly episodic national TV on a Monday night in prime time, certainly. it's it's hard to argue that there's ever been a better a better time. Um, WWF struggled with it originally trying to kind of get consistency and storylines. And when we're in a world now with monthly pay-per-views, they needed that. I mean, WCW could argue really should have had a bit of a heads up in that because they always had the clash. And as much as it was televised and as much as it was not wasn't it a pay-per-view? It was still a monthly big event, and you wouldn't be wanting to get in 15, 20, 25 bucks for a, for a buy on it, but they were still building to something. And I think they, I don't want to say bit off more than they can chew, but I think they realised once they got the Hall arrival and the Nash introduction and what that became, I think they realised what they actually had the opportunity to do in the early days of them having that that angle that you really could bite into I think they realised what they had and they've just been to the races ever since then and I think it just highlights the six months prior that we really could have done something a bit quicker here yeah um, you know it's it's just been one of those things the NWO since hasn't inherently been a brilliant angle you know listen to some of our discussions about that there's been a lot of plot holes in it but the broad strokes of it have been so positive. I think people have either been 
you know, willingly or unwillingly have kind of overlooked that and just gone, this is just a hot commodity, regardless of the flaws in it. It's just a, it's just the cool thing. And it's just kind of dragged everything along. But I think those, you know, it's, it's not so that the ratings even reflect it, though to an extent, I think you always kind of figure the ratings are going to, will, will lag behind and that, you know, you need time to get word of mouth around and all that kind of thing. But that run before Bash at the Beach was just some of the strongest television I've seen. It's some of the most effective work. I mean, you know, we, we, we take this bit after taking the end of year review, end of year award stuff and you, you'll, you'll hear my thoughts on Scott Hall in there if you haven't picked them up already. Um, but he's just been brilliant in that role. And as much as it's a big negative that the NWI was perceived popular, more popular than they should be in the sense that they really should be a heel act. He's probably the main reason why they're perceived to be so cool because we've got this dichotomy at the end of the year where yeah. people are booing Hulk Hogan wearing NWO shirts. There's only really one explanation for that, and that's that they like the they like the brand more than they like the guy at the helm. Mm-hmm. Um, and if they like the brand more than they like the guy at the helm, it's not because VK Wall Street's in the group or Scott Norton or Mark Bagwell uh, or Six or Bischoff. It's it's Hall and Nash, um, and and to an extent, now I don't think the angle works without them or either of them. The, certainly not all. Yeah, I mean the comparison that I make with it is WrestleMania three. Folk went to WrestleMania three to see Andre and Hogan, but they stayed after WrestleMania three because they saw Savage and Steamboat. I think that's the easiest way to sum it up. Is Hogan's the name that got the NWO on the map, but with the, the foundation of Hall coming in and Hall. Even getting back to the late eighties, I think he's cutting the cutting the interviews of his life, and it's with it that that table being set and the kind of story leading up to the third guy. It it was Hall that carried that and Nash to a lesser extent that made the Hogan thing mean something. And even since then, as much as the NWO has struggled, particularly November December with the the affiliations that they've made. It's still Hall and Nash, more so Hall, as you say, that's that's really kind of keeping the interest there, even if it's just a couple of throwaway insider jokes, if it's cutting some interviews, if it's coming across as the cool guys in the pre-tape paid for vignettes. It, it is their, it is their thing. As I say, it's, it's Hogan that gets the, that gets the name in the bill and that brings in the, the casuals, but as I say, the reason that you stay is not for, isn't it for Hogan? It's what's underneath them. How much of a risk was turning Hulk Hogan in the middle of the huge. 96? Absolutely huge. Um, as much as I've had my qualms with Hogan pretty much since about August 94, we, we, we expressed these concerns even in the, kind of April, May when they were teasing all these interviews and kind of putting the tickers on Nitro with his name. We had these concerns about the the staleness potentially that's being there and I mean as much as it did need that shot in the arm and as brilliant as it's been the last six months it's still a huge gamble I mean you don't you don't kind of see these see these turns coming I mean it's like Hulk Hogan's the nearest thing you've got to Ricky Steamboat who's like the perennial baby and it's like you just don't imagine them kind of being that character. I mean, we saw glimpses of it going back to Dark Side Hogan, what was it, October 95? And, I mean, look at the the shitstorm that that turned into when you're sitting on top of a skyscraper and throwing the giant off a roof. 
it's like that, never worked, but there was still something. Whether that's been the catalyst for the full idea, we'll only know in time, but it's still a huge gamble. But by God, when you put the chips down, if you win, you're laughing all the way to the bank. Yeah, I mean, there is a there is an alternative with, with Hogan. I mean, I, I said and, and written before about the inevitability that it kind of had to be Hogan, and to an extent it kind of did. Um, but there was definitely uh, money in Hogan, well, some money, it's a bit of jarring, but in Hogan defending WCW against the two outsiders, there's definitely something in that. And there's also something to be said that Hogan could have been semi-retired into a kind of ultimate warrior type role that WF had him in, at least while he was there, um, regarding <clears throat> he's kind of a, a semi-regular on-screen act, much as he was for the, the two years previously. Um, and otherwise he's just a kind of live event attraction, that kind of thing. You could have phased Hogan out like that. It's not like he was a bust. But, and the arrival of Hall and Nash would have created the things that he hadn't got, i.e. compelling opponents. So that would have helped in that Hogan's struggles were in part weren't just because of the staleness, because of just the staleness of what he was in rather than who he was. Um, but in some ways, I mean... In some ways, I don't necessarily know that it was. It was in the sense that Hogan's always been a babyface and there would have been no guarantee that it would have worked fine. That's worth remembering. But equally, six months ago, Hogan hadn't really moved the needle much in any way of note since, you know, probably mid-95. The end of the Vader stuff was the last thing that really drew any kind of money or anything like that. Subsequently, Hogan's, you know, the, the more they had him on Nitro, the less special he became. Um, and yeah, with six months on his contract and the kind of contract that he had, um, the alternative was keeping him where he was. And I don't know that he would survive where he was. Um, but again, equally, like, I can say all that. It's easier saying it six months down the line. It's easier also just saying it. I don't have to be the one that makes the decision. Someone's going to make the call on that. Probably Hogan works on anyone else. And that's a big change because there's no guarantee that it would have worked. And then, Dell, since that time, I mean, there's really been two things, I think, to discuss when we wrap up this part, this review. Um, we'll start with the NWO since then that, that I think started as a very, very compelling act. Those first few weeks in July after Hogan joined, those those nitros down at Disney, um that big angle at the end of July where Nash and Hall attacked everyone in sight yeah. and that kind of slightly bipolar thing they had regarding, you know, some angles, some weeks they were just chatting with Minji and Oak and other weeks they were just fucking shit up. Other weeks they were just in the truck messing around with things. That was really, really good. And then I think since then, Dell, it's difficult to say because they, they set this up and they have these grandeurs of, oh, let's make it into a promotion or a company. Kind of three guys as a promotion. But I think in trying to make the NWO bigger, I think they've diluted it a bit. And I I guess the question is, as much as Nitro tickets are selling now better than they ever have at seeds, as much as the audience, I would say anecdotally, is hotter than it's ever been, is the NWO stronger in December 1996 than it was in July 1996? It's a hard one to answer, to be honest. I think the... The cutting off point for me, as you alluded to, when the, the, the delusions of grandeur are built into a corporation and a promotion, and I think when the gang warfare ended, 
that was built into something which ironically as we'll come on to the end of the year awards was pretty much braced for a crescendo at World War Three. Um when when that kinda of petered out I think they lost something and you, you say about kind of getting bigger but then also diluting it. It can sound a wee bit like a Led Zeppelin when it's when it's kind of a contradiction in terms, but it isn't really because it's, it's diluted because it's got bigger. But at the same point, even reflecting back to where you were thinking about if Hogan wasn't involved or if Hogan was on the other side of that fence, I don't think it would work quite as well because then you would have Hall and Nash as the main guys and I don't know whether they could carry that. Um, I think they get away with it because they are kind of under the radar at the minute. They they are still leading the segments that they're in, the TV time that they get. God help you and try to draw your eyes after them because it's pretty nigh on impossible. But I think it would have lost some if that had been the case. So, I mean, I think it's... I think it was more instant in July 96. But had that continued the way that it was going, I mean, that would have... That would have been very hard to keep stoking that fire. Um, as hot as that was, as cool as it was, as fresh as it was, I think it was naturally going to run out of course. The only thing is, the way that that would have ended would probably have been a crash and burn, and then they would have lost everything that they'd built up. The way that it's went is it's still ongoing, but there's still so much room for expansion there that I would probably say longer term, it could actually work out pretty well if it's went the way that it's went. Yeah, I, I think that I would say they're in a stronger position now than they are in um, July. But I, I would say the, the 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 road going forward is a bit more unclear. You know, the the, the group's now got sixteen members, which is a lot. We still don't really know who's opposing them. Although I'm going to come on to a few of those guys that will be soon. Um, and it's like okay. But VK Wall Street, I mean, that's the, like, that's the guy, that's the name that kind of jumps off the page, like, oh, but this, this isn't what we planned. But let's, let's move on and discuss three of the names that are outside the NWO, three of the bigger names and, and the years they've had. Cause I'd argue in, in Ric Flair, Lex Luger and Singh have all ended the year in very, very different positions to where they started. Um, Dale, pick those names off, uh, in turn. It's an interesting trifecta because, as you say, there is very, very different directions in where they've went. If you look back, not even necessarily a year ago, but even just pre, pre-New World Order, Ric Flair is Ric Flair. He'll always be Ric Flair. I'd say he's probably in a pretty similar position where he's just that kind of trusted name that is WCW. I think he should probably have a bigger role in directly opposing the NWO, I would say so, because if the NWO is coming in to take over WCW and they beat WCW into submission, Flair is Mr. WCW, so he really should be front and centre, and there is the argument with the, the, the troubles that he's had this year, then he is going to have a bit of a back seat, but if anything, you could probably argue that the fact that he can't compete should probably make him more known in TV, and he should have that bigger role. You look at the other... Kind of main, mainstay that you would say is Mr. WCW, it's got to be Sting. Um, he's seen quite a big downturn since, certainly for an active point of view, for the NWOs come in. You rarely see, you rarely see Sting at all on TV. You don't see him in ring. 
But then at the same time, where he's taken a backward step, it's evolved a character that's been coming in the last couple of years. The first thing that went was the the crew cut. The crew cut got grown out a wee bit. The blonde went, it turned to brown. The face paint kind of got dumbed down and was a bit less. If you look at Sting, circa, what, 90, 91? And you look at maybe 93, 94, there was an evolution there. But Jesus, the evolution that's happened this year has been mental. Kind of, he's kind of in mourning for WCW. There's the full rafter thing. There's the coat and the bat. There's the which side is he on? Where is he? What's he doing? I think that'll probably play out more in the coming year. Obviously, when the contractual situation sorts itself out, it gets a bit more levelled off with appearances. I think that could be a that could be a big money money draw. Um, and then looking at the total opposite of that, Luger, gee, I mean, Luger in WCW and Sid in WWF, it's like, where did that come from? It's like probably the most popular act. The cheers that he gets is unbelievable when you've got the, the full NWO in a World War Three Battle Royal and Every one of us is arguing that Luger should have won that. Luger should have got the title shot and Luger could arguably be the WCW champion. It's, well, I didn't see that coming six months ago since the, since the walkout in the first ever, the first ever Nitro for the walkout in the Mall of America. The full kind of situation with Sting was getting a bit, getting a bit tepid and where he's ended up in 1996. I don't think, I don't think many have seen that coming a few months ago. Yeah, I mean, Flair's been a weird one. Flair's, Flair is coming to the end of his run. You know, I think, you know, he is on the other side of the hill in terms of where, where he's at physically and in terms of his ability. Probably wise, he's still pretty damn good. Um, but Flair's progression has probably been the most natural, say, that bizarre run where he was just randomly putting over Jeff Jarrett for about three weeks and then decided better of it. Um, Sting's yeah, the Sting one was strange. The thought with Sting was turning while Hogan's face so you, that Sting can get out of Hogan's way. And the minute they turn Hogan heel, they turn Sting's character. And I'm not saying he's a heel, though we don't know yet. My assumption is he won't be. Um, but that's all been a bit strange in that, like, you took a guaranteed starter in Sting and it's like, well, let's compromise him. I don't know that I'd be doing that. And then Luca's been the big surprise. Like, Luca, you know, we... Lex Luger's name has been asking more than anyone else's name in three and a half years doing this show. And it's been a hell of a long run. But you remember where Luger was 18 months ago? Just, you know, he might as well have been dead in the WWF. So that was how little anyone cared about him, how little he was pushed. And they brought him to WCW and just went, fuck it, we'll push him. And it's like, oh, and like he's got, it helps that he's got a finishing mood that's over. But it's like, this just works. And we got to the end of the year, and I'm like, I can't believe I'm saying this, but Lucas should have beaten four members of the NWO, and he probably should have made a in Sarkar against Hogan, yeah. say what you will. Um, those are the three big names, and yet none of them have really opposed the NWO yet. Flair's fighting his own battles with the Horsemen, Lucas kind of doing his own thing, and Sting is doing something. We don't quite know what. That's all there. Um, Two things to discuss when we finish. First of all, it will be remiss of us to discuss WCW in 1996 and not talk about the work rate of the, of the undercard. One of the, one of the most shocking and most reliable things where you think, and go back to 1994, I remember some of those paper undercards. So, so bad. And yet, 
recruitment drive probably largely fueled by wanting to fill two hours of live television with compelling action and also just to stop WWF and picking up some really talented guys because WWF are too slow to the draw. Um, but WCW's work rate and batting average this year has almost doubled, or it feels like it. But now it's now you watch WCW pay-per-view and think, well, this is going to be a good two hours. We know what's coming later on, but the first two hours we can pretty much bank on. Yeah, and it's... Uh, I think it's been a forced hand to an extent, as you say, even before... I, I don't think it even goes back to talking about tours in Nitro. I think it talks about Nitro and... Nitro in the very genesis. I mean, you'd, you'd the likes of Jushin Liger, uh, a Brian Pillman, these guys had to be brought in. Then it goes for the early, the tours, then you bring in the likes of your Jericho's and Mysterio's. And it, it, it's a totally different product and it's working. Um, you could, you could pick a, a good few names that have got, I, I don't think they're in the level they are a Hollywood Hogan or a Ric Flair or even a Luger to an extent where they've got that kind of established name value but WCW seems to have stumbled in this rebuilding when they actually think about the future which in the last kind of year or two really since Hogan came in you can't really see them doing before the, the last kind of year or two because the, the Hogan arrival you're then getting well, Hogan comes with fucking Jimmy Hart and then you get Brutus coming in or Brutai as he was. You then get Big Bubba. You get John Tenter. It's just like, oh, well, jobs for the boys. And then when they kind of sussed it, oh, this might not, actually, this might not be that good an idea, um, they then bring in your Eddies and your Rays and your Psychosis and Jericho's and there's a lot of names that you could easily you could easily see them. I mean, we're coming into 1997. You could see them kind of still being here in the next couple of years, and you'd think the natural progression would be when your Flares and your Hogans and your when they do move on, maybe the end of the, the end of the decade, you've got a pretty solid you've got a pretty solid replacement there. It's it's how they use them. But even even for the early, I mean, Rome wasn't built in a day. But even for the early days as we're in the now, it just makes it a mere entertaining product. Which, as you say, going back to going back eighteen months ago, it was anything. But I mean, you could see you could see the same show. I mean, we always go back to Battle Bowl '93. But then look, maybe five six months later, and the shows that they were putting on with the same card, they had something. But it just wasn't solid enough to carry a two week live show. And then a monthly pay per view as it is now. Now you can see them, you can see them having the names, and as much as there is flaws in that main event scene, they've got something to back it up now, which is very, very promising for a company that you would never expect it for. Prospects of 97, Del? <sighs> prospects I want, or prospects I think I'll get? Uh, prospects you think you'll get? Um. Hulk Hogan still been champion this time next year. Wouldn't they surprise me? Um, Lex Luger still battling away. Should be a name. I can still see. At the same point, we know already in the next couple of months we're going to get NWO pay-per-views. We've heard rumblings that it's going to be NWO versus WCW, which builds in an interesting dynamic. I don't see... I can't really see that... 
the NWO puzzles me because I don't see I don't see that carrying on as strong as it was in July because already in December that's not the case of where we, where that would be in a year is that just going to turn into another Faces of Fear or another Dungeon of Doom I wouldn't like to think so I would like to think they can make something of that whether that's making Scott Hall a main event or whether that's kind of I don't know whether I, I really don't know that's the, that's the big question mark for me because I trust the undercard I trust I trust the, the angle that they've got with the NW and I trust the mid card. It's just how, how they shuffle the, the main event for me. Cause you've got a, a contractual situation with Sting. You've got an injury situation with Flair and you've got a just Lex Luger just kind of seem to buy his way into a consistent main event title run. Those. Go on now. No, those, those kind of things are, are are there in the background, it's what they do with them really that I see kind of having a big effect on 97, but the the pieces of the puzzle are there, it's just whether they put them in the right place The, the number one question, can they create a compelling NWO versus non-NWO match and how, what does that look like, because they've not managed that yet, really at all no. um, I know Piper and Hogan we'll see how that buy rate goes, we'll, we'll report on that next month but the question is, you've got this hot angle, great. It's got to manifest itself into something at some point, and that involves having a compelling opposition. They haven't got that yet. But what that forms and what that looks like is going to be really, really interesting. But if they can create a compelling top end of Team WCW that looks good alongside having a lot of NWO guys below it kind of makes sense, even if it does water it down it might mean the sum is greater than its parts if the NWO being bigger, we can just ignore Bagwell, Wall Street the bottom, etc, etc they've got to come up with that that is where we're going to leave it Dalmio, thank you very much No, always a pleasure, nice to look back but also to look forward Bob uh, You can be found on Twitter Yep, on Twitter, Dale underscore Muir Excellent, and on the other side of this, we're going to be talking the WWF. I most definitely believe that the Hitman is the best there was. And I suppose that only time will tell, because I can't foresee the future, but I believe he may possibly be the best that there ever will be. But the one thing I do have to question, and again, with all due respect to you, Brett, I can't believe in my own heart that right now, at this time, in 1996, that you are the best there is, because I believe that that spot is owned by the heartbreak kid, Shawn Michaels. (laughs) Everyone has to have confidence. Here we go. Confidence, unquestionably, a very important part, Bret Hart, of your reign as the WWF champion. And indeed, how do you size up your challenge? Well, with all due respect, Shawn Michaels, I think you're one of the greatest wrestlers I've ever had the privilege of watching. And I know that uh, in the last five months, being the World Wrestling Federation champion, without a doubt, 
have been the hardest five months of my career. And I've taken a lot of punishment from some big guys. And it's awful tough wrestling guys that are 6'9 and 7 feet tall. But no matter what, I really, really look forward to an opportunity to step in the ring and show exactly why it is that I am the best there is, the best there was, and the best there ever will be. Oh, listen to these people. You know, there's a lot of people that misunderstand things. It's not my job to beat you. Being the World Wrestling Federation champion, it's your job to beat me. So, on to the WWF. With me now is Eric Landstrom in a slightly quiet Rory McNamara. We'll work on that. Uh, we'll do our best we can with that in uh, in post-production. Let's talk about the WWF in 1996. Um, I remember recording this show a year ago, um, this end-of-year review, and saying, well, it's all been a bit shit, but 1996 offers us hope that things are going to change. And Rory, I'm sat here at the end of 1996, and I'm going, well, it's all been a bit shit, but 1997 offers us hope for change. Is this more believable change this time around? Um, if it is, they've left it very, very late. There are signs just towards the end of the year in the WWF that they finally, belatedly, realise that things have indeed got to change, that they cannot keep ploughing the same furrow. They're being trounced with ease in the ratings every single week. Pay-per-view numbers are not great. Are not great. Uh, I get the impression that somebody finally has got into Vince's ear and said, look, look, the old ways and the old ways and means, they ain't going to work anymore. We've been doing that and look, we're being demolished every single week. You know, we're the WWF. We're the first company people think of when you mention the words professional wrestling to them. And WCW, of all people, they've only existed as a company properly for six years. And they're, you know, they're stomping a mud hole in us. What are we going to do? And I think, and even though there's still many riddled with flaws, it's finally getting through to them. I just hope that it's not too late. But already I have my fears that it might be. Eric, I think probably the biggest pivot point of the year was around, well, February, March or technically May, if you want to call it that um, when Diesel and Razor Ramon aka Scott Hall and Kevin Nash um, handed a notice on their, their their expiring contracts and with the view that they were moving to WCW. Now we will have discussed in part one, as we have discussed all year on, on both the WF and WCW shows, the ramifications of that move from a WCW perspective um, but Eric, I'd actually argue that bigger hit on WWF wasn't Scott Hall and Kevin Nash arriving in WCW. It was Diesel and Razor Ramon leaving the WWF and the, the void that they left. Uh, I, I think that's a that's an excellent point. Uh, WWF in 1996, especially after April, May, when Hall and Nash were both at the door, the 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 key phrase, I think, was depth. Uh, with Diesel and with Razor, you had two guys. And, and to be clear, with Kevin Nash and, and Scott Hall, you had two guys who were established stars, uh, former uh, multi-time Intercontinental Champion for Razor, uh, long uh, WWF Champion for almost all of 1995, 
uh, Diesel. Um, two guys who really could have provided some depth and some character uh, to a, a pretty thin main event scene uh, after they left. Uh, we're left in this void of Shawn Michaels, Bret Hart, uh, Psycho Sid, uh, the Undertaker and Mankind are on the on the fringe of the, the the top of the card, and there's just not enough depth there uh, in the WWF in middle to late 1996 uh, to carry a, uh, a company. So while Diesel and Razor, as characters, were were huge gains um, for uh, WCW when they acquired Kevin Nash and Scott Hall. Um, the loss of those two guys and uh, and the, the void that those performers left uh, was was felt more, I think, by by the WWF. And then just to tack on a little coda here, when you tack on what the WWF did by trying to uh, keep these characters alive with two clearly subpar performers, it really was just throwing an anchor on top of the uh, on top of the sinking ship, uh, and it, it was. It, just all around a bad showing for WWF after those two left. Yeah, and it, it kind of, you know, you had a bit of dignity when you lost them, but you kind of lost it when you thought that, you know, you kind of insulted your audience by saying, "Yeah, we can, we can repackage these characters. We can, we can replace the guys playing them, and it'll all work out." I mean. That blew up in their face so quickly, and it's it, it illustrative of a company that's so out of touch um, that they thought that that was viable and was a remotely good idea. Um, but yeah, it, you know, you combine that with around the time that Bret Hart left as well, mm-hmm. for a company that was struggling with star power anyway, um, and it just Rory it just left a hole that for about six or seven months was just too big to fill. And they had no idea how to fill it. All you've got to do is look at, um, possibly taking King of the Ring out of the equation, but all you've got to do is look at the uh, pay-per-views they ran from Beware of Dog almost all the way up to Survivor Series. And you, you've just got to look at those cards and you see how bereft they are. And you have to look at some of the matches they had to basically fill time with because two of their biggest stars had split at the same time and they had no idea how to replace them. And then somebody came up with the crackers idea of replacing them by having two other people playing the characters. And we all know how that well turned out. So I still don't think that when uh, uh, Scott Hall and Kevin Ash handed in their notice, I honestly think that Vince McMahon, you know, the hubris laden guy that he is, I almost get the impression he didn't think at the time that it was going to be a massive deal. Well, (laughs) he sure learned the hard way quickly, didn't he? He certainly did, and uh, as I say, we would have discussed it in uh, the, the first section of the show, as we have done for most of the year. That their their as much as it was their loss, it was very definitely WCW's gain. Um, but Rory, I, the, the the one name that kind of got thrown the ball in '96, and they kind of said, "Right, well, Sean, you wanted this spot. Here it is. Um, Sean Michaels." And it, it, it went from a, oh, Sean's on top and there's some guys around him to, shit, Sean's on top and that's all we've got. Yeah. As I, as I said on many of the WWF shows uh, this this uh, this year, um, you look at Sean and you look elsewhere and there's an almighty drop-off. It is no exaggeration to say that he has carried the company on his back. And the 
responsibility of being WWF champion is an onerous one at the best of times. When you're a WWF champion and your company are playing second fiddle to your main rival organization and they poached away two of your biggest stars who just happen to be two of your best friends as well, you know, that's going to leave a mark and for all of Shawn Michaels' faults and He's riddled with them. Make no mistake, just listen back to any shows this month. You know, we, we criticise them when it's called for, and it's called for a lot. But when that guy gets in that ring, he brings it like nobody else anywhere in the world. And he has had to, because if you take Shawn Michaels' matches, again, out of any pay-per-view card and look what you're left with, you are left with some utter, utter, utter dogs, quite frankly. He would add three or four percentage points to all of our WWF pay-per-view ratings on his own. He's had to do it. He's had no choice. And it's clearly had a major effect on him as well. His in-ring tantrums, his uh, backstage behavior, all the rest of it. But he's had to step up. And in the ring, he has done everything that's been asked of him and more. So for that, he deserves a massive, massive amount of plaudits, even taking into account the fact that he's a bit of a prick, really. Eric, what happens if Shawn Michaels gets injured in May? Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> uh, there's a limousine and a truck full of money that pulls up to Bret Hart's Calgary estate and says, great, great time's over, my friend. Uh, time to come back to Stanford. Um, there's a feud between The Undertaker and Mankind that now involves the WWF Championship, possibly. Uh, I... I I don't know because that's that's before Austin wins the, the the King of the Ring. That's before. I think you've illustrated the the specific point of your question, Bob. There, there's nothing they can do other than put the belt on Undertaker and hope for the best. Well, there is one other option. Uh, we probably don't have to discuss oh. it. In, in this, the, the, well, the other option. No, no, the other option would have been getting it right with Vader. Um, oh, yes. Yes. Uh, if, if Sean goes down in May, you know, they do Vader and Bulldog at the next show or something like that. Vader wins the title. Perhaps the winner of King of the Ring wins the WF title as well. They give it to Vader and then they just hope for the best. And, you know, and you, you could, they could have done a lot worse with that, I suppose. But yeah, basically, Sean going down, they'd have found a way, I'm sure. Um, we'll talk in a minute how they found a way, um, when, when another guy went missing. Um, Shawn Michaels on top this year for an in-ring standpoint has been first class, he's been you know, fantastic all year long in terms of having great quality made of that matches on some cards where he's really been the only shining light um, and no massive coincidence that Sean doesn't wrestle on the main card on uh, on December's show and it's one of the worst reviewed shows on the WWF all year um, but Eric, where we and with Sean, we, we found an alternate in, uh, in Sid. You know, and, and, and Sid's the, the prime example of somebody who just comes out to do what they do for the, for the most part. They do it well. Uh, Sid comes out, uh, he, he, he wrestles his big man match. Um, he, he talks how he knows how to talk. And for some reason, he resonates with the 1996 WWF audience, whether or not it's, a resentment of Sean, a rejection of this uh, high wrestling style that they were pushing at the early part of the year with Sean versus Brett for an hour. I don't know what it is, but um, Sid's the perfect example of somebody who 
got hot at the right time and and they went with and it it's going to serve well to transition this uh this company from uh or at least back to the the Sean Brett focus where it needs to be Roy, we discussed before what might have happened had Sid not come back or more pertinently had Warrior not have been suspended and, and, and whether Warrior might have ended up in that spot. I mean, I suspect he wouldn't have. Um, but Sid's been the, the, the real surprise this year, the real rabbit out of the hat. It's just an example of when something falls in your lap and it works, just pick it up and go with it. Say, so I, I could be here, I could be here in 50 years time and I still will not be able to work out why Sid got that reaction when he came back at In Your House International Incident. But my God, that's the reaction he got. And when Vince heard that, he must have been like, hello, have I ever struck gold again here? And Vince rightly, for all all Sid's issues in the ring, with the fact he, broadly speaking, sucks, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. People people were into him. And they, they kept being into him. They were into him in Summer, SummerSlam, into September Raws, and Vince probably thought, just sod it, I'm going to put the belt on him at Survivor Series now, even if it's only for a short-term run. I've just got to capitalise on this. And sometimes you've just got to do that. It might not be the plans you actually make, but you've got to listen to, you've got to listen to what people are telling you. And the fans, they just fell in love with Sid straight away. Inexplicable it might be to me, because I don't think he's much of a promo, and he sure as hell isn't much of a worker, and that's being generous. But he has some kind of it. A smart crowd in New York to cheer him over the best worker in the world this year and cheer him vociferously they did. So credit to Vince on this one for just going with what was going to work. And short term though it might be. Sorry, what was that anymore? No, go ahead. I'm there. Oh, I'm there. I'm, sorry. I'm, I'm, I've already said enough good things about Sid for the rest of the year. Thank you. <laughs> yes. All right. No, you, you <laughs> abruptly stopped. I thought, okay, short term that might be. All right. Um, yeah. Um, Sid's rise this year has been phenomenal in that it really was just a, well, shit's gone with Warrior. And, you know, they were building up this, this big six man main event and they had nobody else, like frighteningly so. I mean, I'm, Somewhat surprised they didn't just get to the point where they called Bret Hart back. Um, but we, we've, we've already mentioned that. Um, but yeah, Sid as a, as a top guy was, was a real surprise and has, has been a real alternative option. And, uh, you know, I, I think the, the, the point that it's just been a way of pivoting out of one kind of run into another, even if Sid is a very, very definite, very, very definite transitional champion. It's an interesting one. It's interesting to see the kind of dynamics at play that see Sid as a as a guy of note. Um, let's move on. Next up, um, Rory. I mean, we'll, we'll vote on it uh, in the next part. Um, but right in amongst the discussion for feud of the year is going to be Undertaker versus Mankind. Um, and we talk about an Undertaker character that had been flagging a bit. We talk about uh, character that. You'd be a very you'd be you know very very risky to to mess with a, a formula like that that has often worked so well, um, and yet we're here at the end of the year, and not only has the feud largely been entertaining with the occasional misstep, both guys are now significantly more over than they were when the feud started, which in that sense is a massive tick, without a doubt. Um, just we, we've said it a lot since we began this project three years ago. The feuds that Undertaker has been involved in. 
He's been dumped in there with complete scrubs, basically, who neither of whom can get a good match out of each other. And the feuds haven't really been over anything. I mean, there was a stupid one with old Karma melting down the bloody urn, or, oh, I just one of the, for fear of brain implosion, I'll blank them all out and IRS and what have you. Mankind comes in the day after WrestleMania. He wins a squash match against Bob Holly. And then he comes out at the end, uh, the end of the show, Undertaker's in a match. He comes out and he absolutely destroys him. He goes up to the top rope and he lands that picture perfect elbow, which was shown, uh, over and over and over again throughout the year. And you knew from that minute on that this wasn't just going to be yet another Undertaker monster of the week contender, that they were really going somewhere with this. And that they clearly and quite rightly had big plans for Mick Foley by throwing him right in there with The Undertaker on his first full day with the company. And it's been a very different feud. It's, it's taken in a lot of different areas. It's been quite, uh, it's been quite psychological at times. I think Foley sold it brilliantly on the mic. And I think, I think Callaway has as well, in all fairness to him. He's had to really up his game on the microphone. It's not just a rest in peace, taker of souls and all that stuff. Um, it's been really quite dark at times. It's certainly been violent in places with WWF hadn't gone. And they've managed to make it last all the way from the beginning of April. Here we are now to the end of the year. And I haven't got bored of it. Uh, and even the matches they've had have been... I'm trying to think of the Vertical's worst match they've had. It was probably the one at King of the Ring. And even that was at least watchable. Um, the brawl they had at... Uh, sorry, I had Well, I'm always taking the Boiler Room brawl out of contention there. Because that was something very different. It didn't quite work. But props for doing something different. You had that great brawl at Buried Alive. You had that surprisingly good wrestling match that they had at Survivor Series. And it's been great. It's advanced. It's gone along. You've added the Paul Bearer thing to the mix. And it has elevated mankind with well, Mick Foley with the WWF straight out the gate. And it has finally done something compelling and interesting with the Undertaker character for the first time in years. And if I don't award feud of the year to this one, then very special that beats it. It's been fantastic. Eric, any, any more to add? No, Rory summed it up, summed it up very well. I would just, uh, make sure to emphasize that Mick Foley is, is responsible for this revitalization of The Undertaker. Uh, they're the perfect foils for each other. Uh, it's just been a wonderful feud. Yeah, I, I, I'd agree. Um, you know, I don't necessarily think it's over. I think perhaps we're ready to break away from it for a little bit, but I wouldn't necessarily rule out revisiting it in, say, six months' time. Um, you know, or if you, you know, as I mentioned on the, um, on the WF show this month, kind of, you know, Mick Foley could be a, you know, Mankind could be a, um, a viable opponent for the WF champion in going into the summer. You could almost, you know, revisit it then. I mean, if you want to put the title on him, obviously. Um, but he's, it's, it's credit to them both that we're having those discussions because the, the program was a bit of a risky one. They tried a lot of different things and most of them worked. And as I say, a, a, any feud where two guys go in and they come out the other side and they've both been elevated is a good feud. And that's, this meets that description. Um, We'll move on to talk about another guy uh, who, in Steve Austin, who won the King of the Ring, but I think was pretty obvious from, from well, just looking at the lay of the land, that Austin, there was no grand plan for Steve Austin. One King of the Ring almost because they didn't have another option, and to some extent because they just didn't realise that Vader would have been the perfect guy to win it. I, I don't know why. Um, it, you know, Vader would have perfectly fit that role. 
But Austin kind of cooled down and cooled down again. And then Bret Hart came back and Bret said to Vince McMahon, I want my first match back to be with Steve Austin. And as a result, Austin got a bit more time. And it seems like he got a bit more leeway to to open up the floodgates on his character. And Eric, we end 1996 and Austin's one of the brightest stars they've got. Or one of the brightest potential stars. Yeah, he's got his uh, he's got his hands in a lot of cookie jars uh, right now, spread over multiple multiple feuds. I mean, I think back in October we were talking about how Austin can carry multiple feuds, and that is definitely continuing. Uh, him and Bulldog, him and Brett, uh, he's he's pretty much everywhere. Um, the, what worries me about Austin is every time it seems that they try to do something uh, unique with him, something that uh, would progress. His particular storyline, the, the gun incident, any of these controversial storylines that they pull back for a little while, and you almost have to start from square one again with with Austin's character development. So I worry that they're just going to give up on it, and, and he's going to uh, become a, a generic WWF uh, tweener type character. If they don't do that, if they can manage to see him through, he's a good enough uh, in-ring worker he's good enough on the mic he's he's good enough with pretty much everyone they've put him in with and the crowd definitely gets behind him i mean he was by far the the biggest pop of the night on the uh it's time uh from the it's time crowd and he wasn't even scheduled to wrestle on the card or at least on the televised card and so he's got enough behind him working for him to where if the wwf does decide to get behind him and, and really move him along into a, a permanent, prominent role, uh, they, they might have something cooking with him. Rory? Oh, they really do have something cooking with him, but uh, it's taken him a while to realise it. And we need to be aware, even though it was only six months ago, we need to be wary of revisionist history here. Um, um, what we're already calling that uh, that promo at, uh, at King of the Ring six months ago. I mean, I, I've got to be honest, I wasn't massively super struck on it at the time. But we also need to be wary of thinking that, oh, um, he cut that promo and then a fire was lit under his ass. Not true. Um, he wasn't even booked on the SummerSlam show two months uh, afterwards. He was beating Yokozuna in one minute and 20 seconds in a, in a free-for-all match after Yokozuna falls off the rope. Former um, two-time he, champion Yokozuna, though. <laughs> nice, nice try, nice try. <laughs> so it took a while to heat it back up. And it all started for me with uh, the show we were on in October when he cut that promo on Bret Hart on the final roar of October. I mean, that was just an absolute force of nature coming to the fore right before my eyes on my television screen. This guy, clearly um, uh, a dialed up to 10 extension of his real personality. And I was like, yes, yes, you're a bad guy. Yes, you beat people up for no reason. Yes, you don't give a fuck. But you know what? In a way, I dig that because you're you. You're somebody I can actually relate to. And this is the direction that WWF need to start going in. And uh, Stone Cold Steve Austin is the perfect embodiment of that. And I think that's why he's been getting some largely, not completely, but some largely positive crowd reactions, uh, especially uh, you read some of the sheets last couple of months, especially at house shows. Um, he's been cheered over um, all the uh, all the baby faces he's actually been booked against. So it's taken a while to realise but they've got something here. I mean, the guy and the guy can absolutely go in the ring, just watch that match against Brett from Survivor Series again and t- tell me the guy still can't work. So they've got something very special here but they've got to keep letting him be himself. I, I feel like we've been really, really positive about the WWF this year in the 
time zone or the time slot we have to to discuss it. About five more minutes to go. Uh, And for the sake of balance, I feel like I just need to just reel off at times this year. <laughs> just, just for, I, I, you know, like it, we were talking about, you know, Shaw's had really good matches, Undertaker and Mankind's been a really good feud, Steve Austin's been on the rise. Yeah, yeah, I mean, if you want to, if you want to really squint and really kind of take a far out look and ignore a couple of, you know, blind spots in the middle, maybe. But you can't overlook that the pay-per-view quality this year has overall been very, very poor. The match quality on pay-per-view this year overall has been very, very poor, with the exception of Shawn Michaels that's been keeping the ship afloat. You can't ignore the fact that hardly anyone has been over for the majority of this year. You can't ignore the fact that tag division has been shit for the majority of this year. In fact, all of this year, let's be honest. Tag division has been dreadful. They've been opening up shows and just being diabolically bad. The match at SummerSlam is one of the worst matches I have ever seen. That includes four of them. You know, you want to look at talent they've had that they've not done a lot with. Vader! Fucking Vader! Bought, bought in the the MVP from the other team. And, they, you know, they, they booked him quite well. Like, you can't you can't book Vader quite well. Like, you know, it, it's, it's not difficult. Make him an ass kicker. Like they, that match against Shawn Michaels should have been massive at SummerSlam. It also probably should have been a match where Vader should have won. Um, just for the sake of people should have seen coming that shit, we've run out of opponents for sure. Maybe we need to change direction. Nobody saw that. Um, let's look at the, the, the TV as a whole. I mean, TV from May through until September was so, uh, mid, mid-October so fucking bad so boring, so irrelevant such a waste of time let's look at, as I mentioned in December let's look at their misaligned priorities on television, let's look at the fact they spent three months doing these billionaire TED segments, all just so Vince McMahon could get an ego trip over on television despite the fact, you know, it looks somewhat hypocritical, burnt bridges with a couple of guys they might want to bring back Randy Harris could be back in a few months, we don't know and look at stuff like fake razor and fake diesel. I mean, fucking hell. I mean, how, how bad have you got to be that you, you know, you, you thought that was a good idea? How bad is your judgment? Um, yeah, Eric, any more to add? Well, you summed it up really well, Bob. The bright spots of this year have been Shawn Michaels, The Undertaker, Mankind, and Stone Cold Steve Austin. The remaining 98% has been pretty, pretty, pretty terrible. Um, or at least inexplicable at times, if not outright terrible. Um, if, if not both. If not, and somehow both. Um, and yet we have, uh, we have hope for 1997. I, I, I hope we're not being hoodwinked again. Yeah, we, we, we kind of do, man. We're just getting drawn in again. But it, it feels like something's changed. And it feels like like uh, something's changed in Vince McMahon's mind in terms of how he wants to tell stories. It's just now how he leverages and harnesses this this new change because it could all go off the rails. Vince McMahon's been sat on this dead TV for a good eighteen months now. Finally, someone got his ear and said this can be different. But they've got a lot of moving parts right now, and they're getting hammered in the ratings. I mean, I, I think if Brett had gone to WCW, that might have been it. Just, you know, turn the lights off, shut the door, or just give up hope. 
Um, but Rory, they do have hope. There is hope, and it's uh, we've six months ago we, we regularly on shows saying how how thin the thin gruel they had on their roster, and now you've got four people on top. Um, that's, that's almost excluding the likes of the Undertaker and Mankind, who are now all bona fide main eventers. There are lots of places you can go with them. They seem to be telling a lot of intertwined storylines between the four of them. That's Brett, Sean, Sid and Austin. So you've got a lot of constituent parts there. You've still got some good workers on your roster. and We, we all know who they are. So there are parts there if they know how to use them correctly. It's about you can't just throw everything at the wall and see what sticks. You've got to put it's, it's square pegs, square holes. You know, you've got to make make the best of what you have got because what they've got isn't bad. Constituent parts, it's not bad. I just don't trust Vince McMahon to use them properly, even with the uh, green shoots of hope that we've seen over the last two or three months. Now, I can see um, next year, especially after WrestleMania, it's just going back to Raw being self-contained 50 minutes of television which is barely uh, wrestling challenge level where nothing is really nothing is really resolved nothing is really ever pushed forward with new feuds and just basic squash matches with mid-carders that don't really mean anything which so much of Raw has actually been this month because uh, Vince McMahon doesn't know how to tell episodic how to tell episodic stories there are signs that maybe just finally he's getting his act together on that but um, for all the good stuff we've talked about in the last half hour or so, and I think correctly, because there's a lot of good stuff out there, I just don't trust them. We've been here before. We end with a bit of hope very, very briefly. Thank you to Eric Landstrom. Eric, thank you very much. You can be found on Twitter. Yep, at Modern Day Lawyer. And Roy McNara. Uh, cheers, Bob. You can find me on Twitter at RawsDM. R-O-R-S-D-M. Excellent. We'll come back from the other side of this and we'll be discussing ECW. What are you doing here? Haven't you heard? (laughs) I like you as an announcer. You know why? Because I just had an announcer. In Atlanta, Georgia, take away my constitutional rights. I have been fired by Eric Bischoff. He's a pretty popular guy. He's pretty popular with my legal department as well. <laughs> Bishop, or should I say, jerk off? You can't take away my constitutional rights because I'm in. Where the Constitution was written. Now, Mr. Gopher, Mr. 90s whiz kid. 
the great success story of 96. Former coffee gopher. God, yeah. Is now leading the show in the big time. You are a piece of fucking shit. No, 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 Joey Styles. You're not running this interview. I am. Because I'm Brian fucking Bellman. Anything I tell you a little more. You know what Eric Bischoff is? Eric Bischoff is eat. And every one of these motherfucking smart marks rolled up in a one giant piece of shit. I guess, I guess you guys didn't get that. Smart marks. What's a smart mark? A mark? With a high IQ. Okay, smart marks. And we are here for the ECW part of the 1996 year in review. And it's me, your usual host of uh, ECW parts, Chris, and I'm with Bob. How do, Bob? Hello. Just thought I'd sit this side of the uh, mic, if you like, or something like that, for the uh, for for the final part. It is a, you know, this is your show now. We just kind of rotate presenters, of which I, I'm one of them. Uh, but yes, good evening. Let's uh, let's chat some ECW from 1996. So, in in the way that I do with the news, I'm going to throw out the the headlines of it, and then we'll discuss from there. So, the first thing for this year, Shane Douglas's return. And the amazing feud with the Pitbulls. Yeah, I mean, Douglas came back. I mean, you know, we, we, we did his, well, his fall. There wasn't really a rise. His fall in the WWF in 1995. Um, and he came back, and I think he said in January it's been purgatorious times, I think, for the franchise in uh, in 95. He came back as I wouldn't say this mega baby face, but certainly this big face. You know, a lot of ECW fans felt like he'd been misused. A lot of ECW fans were delighted that he'd come back. Um, and Douglas, I, I think you're right putting this story up front. There's a number of different things that probably could have gone up front here. But Douglas's story over the 12 months has been this, you know, kind of him wanting to, I want to say rebuild his reputation, but there'll certainly be a point about that. And to an extent, he's not, it's not like he went to WCW to try and rebuild his reputation. It's, um, you know, he was, he came back to an audience that knows him already and knows what he's capable of and know that his WWF run wasn't this be all end all. But to, to come back as this baby face and then do this kind of slow pivot into this monumental heel. I mean, this, I mean, you know, we're going to get to the, the angle in October. This guy's getting fantastic heel reactions. 
Um, and he ends the year as probably the strongest character ECW have got. It's like, as you said, sort of he came back with, with the hero's welcome because obviously, you know, everyone in ECW saw that he was used wrongly and poorly by the Fed. And they were like, oh, the prodigal son has returned. We've, we've got our guy back. He, you know, he is an ECW bloke. We've got him back. And, you know, he could have quite easily sort of sat on that and just, you know, gone, right, I'm back. I haven't really got to push myself. I haven't got to do a lot. And as we've seen this year, he's he's not just sort of sat there and gone, I just have turned up to get paid and just do a little bit here and there. Yes, he's only had the TV title. He's not gone after the world title. But this has been the year where, of all the things, his stories, his storylines with the Pitbulls, his storylines with Tommy Dreamer, have been probably the best that this company's had this year. You know, we're going to talk about a few other sort of major stories through the through the rest of this going forward. But this one has been, you know, anything that Douglas has touched has been gold this year. And the fact that he is, other than probably Fonzie's whistle, the most hated part of ECW, and the fact that, as in the last show of the year, you know, there's reports that a fans hit him, to get an ECW fan base to hate you that much that they physically want to punch you. I mean, the, the big one, I mean, we'll come on to it in a second, but the big one was the the angle in October. I mean, the bit where he gets out of the ring and the, the security had to stop about three or four people jumping the rail to try and attack him. This guy's getting legitimate reactions from a fan base that you would think would back themselves to know better. Um, and, you know, it comes to what we've said before. Sometimes the, the fans that think they know better are the easiest ones to fool. Um, mm. But Douglas, to his credit, is getting these visceral heel reactions. Um, and it's great to watch. And say, it, I, I can't think of anyone either in the Fed or even in WCW that's got that sort of level of reaction from the fans that they are hated with that much passion and that much that people are willing to actually try and attack them. It's... It's like heels used to get heat in the 80s. You know, you hear stories of sort of places in like Texas or even in sort of Louisville and things like that where fans would try to stab the bad guys. That's how you knew you were doing a good job. And that's the sort of level where Shane is. And the reason that's come all about is, as we're about to sort of mention, the Pitbulls feud. And the Pitbulls have been one of the big stories of the year, I think, in terms of, you know, they, they've been the, the other half of this Douglas Act. And they came into the year as, as one of the teams that you would have figured would have replaced the, the outgoing public enemy. And they haven't really done that. I think, you know, the Pitbulls were much stronger as a tag team in 95. Um, but as we saw with that match, I think it was a, a matter of respect in May when Pitbull 2 was um, thrown into a random three ways that... Pitbull 2, more so than Pitbull 1, um, has been a, a big factor in this year. I'm the turn of Francine and all of that. Um, 
But we're going to get to it in the end of year nominations in, and, and feud of the year. Douglas and, and the Pitbulls is going to be right up there in terms of, you know, creating compelling angles. And off the back of that, creating some really quite good matches. And that's been a a thing that ECW has found it hard to put together. They've, they've been able to create good angles and they've been able to have good matches, but there hasn't been that much crossover. And I don't think this was that close. Um, but in terms of the end of year awards, um, there's a case for Douglas and, and Pitbull 2 from October being one of the matches of the year. And there's a case for this being feud of the year because it's got that level of reaction. And it's probably the bulk of it's been on Douglas, but the Pitbulls deserve their credit as well in that Douglas is a guy that can be up and down in terms of match quality. And Pitbull 2, with the help of Pitbull 1, has certainly held his own in that regard. Yeah, as you said, you know... Um... They've really sort of pushed themselves both with Shane sort of being the heel and the fact of the Pitbulls. Because, you know, at the beginning of the year, or even even last year, they were pretty much nameless monster tag team, just destroy people, you know, do the the top rope power, super bomb. You know, the fact that they didn't have names, they're just known as one and two. It's only been when the, with the neck break angle that we even know that one of them's called Gary. You know, it's it's one of those of these are meant to be sort of job uh, nameless, faceless sort of number one, number two type people, and the fact that we've been able they've been able to make a story around that just shows that you know when they do it right in ECW, they do it right. So. Another tag team this year that's had a, a, a decent year, the Eliminators. A, a, a rise of match quality for them this year. Yeah, um, you know, they've, you know, it, I'm sure they've wrestled other tag teams, and they have, but it does just feel like them and the gangs have just been perpetually wrestling each other for the entire year. Um and credit to all four guys, but I'll give the Eliminators a bit more of the rub in that that program doesn't feel like it's got old. And in the sense that in part, it's just been a kind of a live event program they just kept going to. Um, but Eliminators are one of the standout tag teams of the year. Both guys are really, really good. Um, and yeah, I, I, I kind of wish this was... Eliminators were around early, mid-95, when we were seeing other tag teams getting involved and that kind of thing. Um, it does feel, you know, we've had the kind of the super destroyers and teams like that in there this year, whatever, you, whatever they were called. Um, it does feel like the Eliminators need some fresh opponents. Um, we didn't really get them with Furnace and Cropper, which was a bit of a surprise. I get the feeling the anticipation perhaps was that Furnace and Crawford would have been around a bit longer than they were. Um, but yeah, I, I think Eliminators have been a standout tag team this year. I've enjoyed what they've done with the gangsters on the whole. I mean, it's been very believable, even if it's been very one-dimensional. Um, and hoping that they get to showcase their talents more next year against a wider range of opponents. And it has to be said, I'll sort of keep this one a bit quick, that the total elimination as a move and a visual on whoever they hit it against looks amazing. The, the one where they sandwiched, uh, they, they sandwiched New Jack between two tables and did it like that. My word. They'd be doing it on some of the women as well who've been, uh, I think Francine mainly, proper troopers for taking it. Um, yeah, uh, I, I think they've had a, a really, really strong year. 
And just uh, an example of ECW booking, it's very rawish, just like, you know, we've got two real brutes of guys, don't have a ton of character, but it doesn't really matter. Just go out there and book them really strongly the entire year. We're talking at the end of the year as an overact. Mm. Job done. So, the, the major story of the year, and the title feud for most of this year, Raven, Sandman, Laurie, Tyler. Yeah, kind of feels like they've overplayed their hand a little bit with this one. I don't know. And yeah, we've been through it a lot with the ECW quote-unquote world title before. Um, and some of it is just, you know, ECW being quite a fluid promotion in terms of talent. They don't want to be worried too much about giving a title to a guy that might not be around all the time, might not be able to do all of their shows and all that kind of thing, which does does constrain them a bit in terms of the guys they have on shows versus the guys they can put the titles on. And Raven's a good act, and Sandman's an overact. I would just be very, very reminiscent of putting these guys together because, you know... It was okay the first couple of times, but we're, we're now in what feels like match number six, seven, eight. I don't know. It's been a lot. Um, probably say we're in double figures. We could be. Well, if you added up all the live events, I'm sure we're, we're well into double figures. Um, but it, it just feels like they've come up with something quite creative, but they just haven't been able to pull it off. There was a whole thing in October, September, whenever it was, um, where they did the crucifixion angle that we never got to see and all of that. And I guess that would have been a major plot point. Um, the stuff with his kid, you know, that's been one thing that the pay-per-view providers haven't been too happy about either. Yeah, I, I, I you know, I, I said it, I said it many times before when it comes to the ECW title, you know, it would, you know, why not just stick it on the best full-time guy you've got? And I don't think it's either of these two guys. And as we came to the conclusion on the December ECW show, why not just stick it on Douglas? I know it's obvious. I know it's easy. But it's like Douglas is the most compelling act you've got. He's a guy that can be put in those main event positions and can have a, a passable main event match against just about anybody. And I think the the biggest damnation of all this was the the title change in this month. Raven wins the title and the crowd were completely dead. That's mm. not a that's not a good sign. And it says a lot that the the best match involving these two guys this year was a three way dance that involved Pitbull Two as well. Pitbull Two made that match. Um I think that's the biggest problem. I get here at the end of the year, I can't really tell you that many things about their, their matches. The storyline a bit more. You know, kind of lot of Tyler getting taken to the other side and all of that. But their matches have just been so forgettable. And it's a weird attitude for a company that prides itself on so many things that it's so laps. Yeah, as I say, the, the work between Tyler, Laurie, you know, the whole sort of Raven stealing you know, the, the family was a really, really good concept. And, you know, for the first couple of months of it, you know, it worked really, really well. You know, you never, you know what you're going to get with Sandman. You know what you're going to get with Raven. And you sort of knew, however good the story is, the matches were going to be shite. But the fact that it still kept going has sort of soured what was a good initial story. But the fact that I'm hoping that they're going to sort of blow this off now and have it done so we don't sort of go into 97 with it. Is a hope, but obviously, you know, we wait and see. Um, talking of feuds that we didn't really see this year, 
from last year, Raven and Dreamer, Raven and Dreamer even, still m- bubbling underneath the surface. Yeah, um, you, you might think this might be, you know, it sounds like they might do uh, Funk and Raven at the pay-per-view, and I, you could get Dreamer and Raven heated up quickly enough if you wanted to, but yeah, like it's been it's been bubbling under an ECW so flu with stories that that's kind of come to a head on more than one occasion. I think there've been certain shows where they just headline with it just because of the hell of it. Um, mm. I think certainly New York and things like that where they just want a bit more of a a, a name match up. It's it's bubbling under. You know, in us going on, Dreamers mentioning Raven enough and their crossing paths enough. Um, yeah, I, I think they will just keep the feud bubbling under until they decide, yep, yeah, we, we, we've got a pay-per-view coming up in September next year, so if that's when the second one is, assuming the first one goes ahead. Um, and they're like, yep, yeah, we've got this on, let's do this match in the headline spot. And they can plug it in, it'll be a big culmination of a feud. And um, but yeah. get, you know, to- Tommy to beat Raven. Because that's the thing, even now, we're still, what, two years since this feud started? And Tommy still hasn't won a match against Raven, or actually pinned him. Yeah, I think that's a bit, you know, it's a little overdone. I, I know what they mean. I think it's a little overstated in the sense that he hasn't, but he's, he's, he's beaten him before. He hasn't pinned him, but he's beaten him plenty of times. And I know that's part of the story. Um, but it's like, it would mean more if the circumstances surrounding it meant more and if Dreamer pinning Raven would have meant the end of it at any point had he done so. As it was, it just feels like a stip. Just feels like, oh yeah, he's not pinned Raven. It's like, well, he hasn't. But what would it matter if he had? And they haven't really got that point. Not they're really trying at the moment. Hmm. Well, so last year we had the likes of Benoit, Malenko, Guerrero, this year we've had an influx of luchadors and other wrestling types. We've had Rey Mysterio Jr., Psychosis, Hubertude Guerrero, Chris Jericho, Luis Piccoli, another uh, for newbies. Yeah, um, you know, I think we gave Paul Heyman a lot of credit last September when Eddie Guerrero and Dean Malenko left. And we said, oh, Hayden's got his, his contacts book out again. He's dug up Rey Mysterio and, uh, Juventud Guerrero, I think it was, in that, in that early run. Um, and then those guys got snapped up by WCW and it's become a lot, lot harder for them this year. I think what we've seen is that guys have come in and gone very, very quickly. Psychosis came in and then he was on WCW TV within two months. They got Crawford and Furnace in and within two months they were in the WWF. Um, and even other guys like that. It's been a, a real transitional year for them in that one thing they they had in 1995, and they arguably had the two best wrestlers in North America in 1995 in Benoit and, and uh, well, Benoit and Guerrero, Malenko a third. Um, they lost those guys and they brought in Rey Mysterio who could probably make his own claim to that, that title as well in terms of his ability to, to wrestle dazzling styles. Um, but the well was always going to run dry and this production line of great wrestlers was always going to run out, particularly once one or both of the big two had an incentive to, to kind of pump that well dry. Um, and now we're left with what we're left with. Um, but now it feels a bit more like, okay, Paul, you can't just 
call upon these great wrestlers from other places. We've seen that now. WCW are doing that now. The rights are wrong to that, etc., etc. And Chris Jericho is another name you mentioned as well that was within the mix too. Now it's like, okay, what can you do with these guys that aren't world class? What can you do with Chris Candido? What can you do with Louis Spicoli? What can you do with Brian Lee? You know, guys like that. This is a bigger challenge for him. And I think you know, we'll discuss it a bit more towards the end of this bit. But going forward, just in terms of, okay, now you've got a, you know, now you can't just throw in big guys and just kind of go, well, we know they're going to be great because they are. Now you've got to work a little bit harder. And that's going to be a challenge because one of the reasons ECW always worked in 94, it always works in 95 and the first half of 96. Because for everything else that was going on, they had these quote-unquote outsiders that came in and in a, in a sandbox wrestled, in a vacuum wrestled, a great wrestling match. They don't have that now. And now it's like, okay, how do we restore this balance? And that's the great challenge. Well, yeah, as you said, um, so quite easy problem with Spicoli and Candido coming back in, um, sort of basically coming off runs in the Fed where given pretty terrible gimmicks and sort of now changing themselves up and sort of getting themselves back over. You know, there, there may be the chance that next year there'll be more guys that the Fed or WCW sort of throw by the wayside. Look at what they've done with Austin. You know, they didn't have him for very long, but they took advantage of what they had and made something with it. The same with Cactus Jack. So, yeah, as I said, we've had um, Austin sort of come in and then sort of go to the Fed. Cactus Jack sort of rebuilt himself. There's a precedent there that they can take someone who's not worked in one of the major twos, put a fire in their bellies and sort of, you know, change the character just enough to make them something special. So in 97, who knows who might get, you know, released from one of the other two companies and become the hidden gem that then sort of moves forward with ECW. So it's one of those sort of, it's been another good year of people coming in and going out. But obviously, you know, ECW, if especially we're going to pay-per-view, are going to need to keep people a bit longer than just a few months at a time. Sad times, but, you know, it was only for a beginning part of the year, but the loss of Cactus Jack for ECW. Yeah, um, talk about the MVP in 1995, um, and another guy a bit like Douglas who seemed to be able to have the ECW audience on a string, um, even even an audience that thinks itself to be really, really smart, um, that there were times where it felt like, you know, he was, you know, you almost kind of forgot how good he was and that he was around so regularly. Um, but his is, we, we talk about filling the shoes of the, the high flyers. His is probably one of the more difficult shoes to fill in that, you know, he was cutting all those great promos and he was interchangeable in all these kind of main main event title type programs. Um, and he's got on to better things. But yeah, an, another big name that had a really good year, really liked what they did with him on the way out. Um, and the fans showed him that level of appreciation on the way out. Um, I don't know... You know, Cactus Jack was on ECW television for around 18 months. I don't know that that would have lasted another year before, you know, the, the, the baby face dealing with the thing with Mike and all that and that and that. 
Um, and then they kind of transition him into a more, slightly more serious and a slightly more elevated role. Then they turned him heel and all that kind of thing. I don't know whether there was more that they could have done. So in many ways, as, as kind of bigger holes it was for him to, to have left, it wasn't the worst thing in the world that he did. No, and as you said, it was one of those of, if you just look at what he was doing, especially the back end of last year, and, you know, especially the very beginning of this year, his he was such a compelling part of of what the major TV was and the sort of major angles of shows that, yeah, he he is missed. But then obviously, you know, CW that we've said, since since ninety three really is you know people come and go and it's it vibes it doesn't it doesn't live and die on big name stars like the Fed does does or you know you know it's all about Hogan or it's all about Sean or it's all about Brett or Taker or something like that you know ECW you aren't always hearing chants for that wrestler it's always the company that gets chanted and talking about. ECW and its sort of way of doing things. This year has seen the bar been raised in pushing the limits of what you can do. From this year, we've had table spots from on top of parked lorries and people jumping off scaffolding. New Jack jumping off the builds to upper stage of buildings through tables the fuck out of a 17 year old kid it's just ECW I mean you know it's just it's just how ECW works and you create this kind of renegade type promotion where you know we're the the outlaws we're the the isle the misfit island misfit toys or that kind of thing when you pushing the limits and say we're anti-WWF that's quite flat or anti-WCW that's sort of flat and you create this you know this never say die type attitude amongst the talent and amongst the fans as well and this you know and also I think to a point when when you create this reputation of appeasing the fans and it kind of comes back to what we said about 911 last year when you keep doing it and you keep doing it and when they say right we'll do four choke sounds right we'll do five and then you do a, a table spot, and then you go, right, we'll do two tables. And then you do a double table spot. Right, we'll do three. Just do three, then we'll do four. You create this attitude that we're going to give the fans more than the previous time. You are occasionally going to go too far. And that doesn't re- – I'm not really talking about the New Jack thing here. That's slightly separate, although that's part of it. Um, but more just – they, their, their whole thing is pushing the limits. They're extreme championship wrestling. It's in the name. Um, and so the fact that they've done some wacky shit over the course of 12 months, I'm not really surprised because that's, you know, in the course of one month, they do some wacky shit. And it's, 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 it's quite weird in the sense that they've normalized a lot of incredibly crazy stuff. Sabu has normalized a lot of incredibly insane shit because he does it so much and to an extent because he makes it look so effortless. Um, but equally, the flip side of that is stuff like what happened with New Jack last month. It's this, you know, this renegade attitude, this attitude that, you know, and also to an extent, maybe just believing in the characters and believing in the gimmicks that you play and that New Jack can go out and do that. And the fact that ECW will be willing to go to a show and not 
check on the background of a guy before they put him in the ring and put him in the ring with New Jack and all of that. Yeah, I mean, you know, some, quite a bit of it's unfortunate and all of that, but it is ECW. You've got to cover it at this level of depth and we're going to look at it and, and just see and they're going to do this kind of stuff at this kind of volume in front of a very, very rapid fan base. You are going to get stuff like this. This thing is, if you look through what we've sort of spoke about for most of this year, it's always sort of, seems to be a constant game of horse of, well, you did that, now look what I can do this time. You know, ooh, a normal table. I will double this table. I will take it from the top rope table. And we've seen it sort of escalate and escalate. Going forward, obviously, there's the pay-per-view next year if it sort of happens. Can they still keep pushing the limits the way they have this year? Obviously, take it, taking out mass transit, because I, I don't think something like that can ever happen again. Um, or that may be the death of the company. But sort of as in, you know, the sort of one-upmanship of table spots, the one-upmanship of brutality in matches... The, the violence against women as we saw in the pay-per-view, in the main show of this month. Do you think that can continue and sort of keep sort of going, pushing the envelope further with that going into the new year? Or do you think with, obviously with the pay-per-view coming up, that they may have to tone down the, the product for mass consumption if that's what they're going for? I think the expansion with this kind of thing is always likely going to be into um, a more mainstream audience, not further away from it. You want to get bigger. You can't get bigger by being more niche. Um, and, yeah, pay-per-view, I think, is going to provide that. We've kind of seen that when we've discussed USC before in that they've had to make certain concessions to be acceptable to pay-per-view providers and to a point just so that they're not perceived as this you know, as much as ECW want to be positioned outside of this world that WWF and WCW sit in, in many ways that's where their next audience is. And so they're going to have to go towards that. And it's going to be a real difficult balance to strike when they get on pay-per-view, if they do. Well, it's the thing, it's like, in terms of... Oh, God, Chris. I was going to say, because obviously we've, we've, we've already seen that pay-per-view companies are sort of saying we want assurances of stuff that you're going to do. We want assurances of people that are going to be there. We're going to want, you know, is there going to be blood, all that sort of stuff. Are they going to be sort of crippled by this of what they can do? They, they shouldn't be. They shouldn't be. They, you know, there's a way of presenting an ECW show that is more acceptable. And, you know, when we talk about them going to pay for you, it's not a case that they have to abide by the same sets of rules and standards the WWF do. Um, I think the pay-per-view providers are happy. It's a different product. They have to present it as something different. But there is a, a minimum acceptable standard of what they can present. ECW are going to have to find the balance. But I don't think it's that difficult. I think... ECW is a lot of different things to a lot of different people, but you can present an ECW show that fits into these remits. You've just got to work a bit harder, and you can't just sit on these lazy tropes. You can't just start calling women sluts and whores and start throwing them around just because that's what you do, and it works in front of your niche audience. you just got to be a bit more clever. Um but, yeah, I, I think if anyone can do it, Paul Heyman can work it out. Um, and, you know, just because they've done it like this so far doesn't mean they can't do it another way. They're just going to have to find another way. 
Mm. So, finally, so I'll chuck this into this bit because we're going into it because we haven't really had anything from them this year. Taz and Sabu, and what else for 1997? Uh, well, pay-per-views, as we said, probably the, the, the big ECW story going into next year. I think the main thing is just seeing, you know, ECW feels like, you know, Paul Heyman said, you know, that the pay-per-view in March or April is going to be the culmination of a lot of big stories. I feel like in some cases they've got to start those up. If they're going to have Terry Funk in the main match. They've got to get him heated up with someone, presumably Raven. Uh, they've got Sabu and Taz, which has been going on a while, but hasn't really gone anywhere yet, and they're starting to move that forward. But I think the big challenge for ECW is how can you get this level of roster in a way that can be a reliable and consistent level of show. Because I said earlier, one thing that works well with ECW, or worked well with ECW in the past, was almost that the net of a three-hour show was a really good show because you had a lot of different things. It was a variety show. I don't think they've got that variety anymore. And now it's like, okay, we're not working with Chris Benoit anymore. We're working with Chris Candido. That's a very different change of pace. And Candido's good, but he's no Benoit. Um, and so, yeah, they, I think their big challenge is, well, I'm going to be transitioning to pay-per-view um, and getting that kind of right and how successful that is. Because who knows? Like, pay-per-view could be a big frontier for ECW in terms of becoming more profitable and expanding. Um, and also just trying to create a compelling product without necessarily compelling talent. They don't have a lot of great wrestlers anymore. That used to be their forte was that imported or not, we've got the biggest stars, the, the, the biggest and re- best wrestling talent. Don't have that anymore. Um, and as we see the bigger companies starting to borrow from them, the other thing I haven't really mentioned, which could be kind of a play in 97, is their interaction with WWF. That's kind of ongoing a little bit. Um, but yeah, I, I think the, the two big challenges are getting on pay-per-view and that kind of expansion and that change and working with a, what I would call a more limited roster than perhaps we've seen them over the last couple of years in terms of genuine stars. Mm. Because obviously, I'm, I'm sort of looking at it. Obviously, pay per view is going to be the the main thing for next year. Um, with that, literally, sort of, I reckon if that goes badly, it could sort of be a sort of death nail in ECW. Um, so all, all hoping it does go well. Because if not, I won't have anything to watch later part of next year. Um, but obviously. I mean, they need to maybe sort of look at getting people, as we've already seen, they're trying to get major tying down to people's contracts now. Bit of stability in the roster. Um, looking, looking at sort of maybe Japan to get new guys or some sort of other bits of Mexico and stuff and sort of maybe tying them down to deals where they can't be snapped up within a couple of months as soon as they've got a bit of exposure. Um, I'm interested in seeing how the transition to pay-per-view and mainstream goes and whether it changes the product and how it changes the product going forward. And also, you know, I know we haven't really spoke about it that much because we've spoke about it all year, that I hope that they can make the world title a bit more relevant next year and not just the sort of second or third thought of another storyline. On going back with ECW, that I think that's uh, we, we might be losing that one as well. Mm. So, thank you very much, Bob, for joining us on this year in review of ECW, and I will pass it back over to you to close out. 
Yes, uh, this is the third and final chunk of this show. Firstly, obviously, thank you to you, Chris Lacey. Uh, tell us, people, where they can find your WCW podcast. You can find the annals of, as we're still in the mists of 1992, of WCW, uh, Super Rules on Facebook, Twitter, and the iTunes, and if you want to hear me just ranting about music and odds and sods, find me on Lacey555666. Excellent. And thank you to everyone else who's appeared on this month's uh, end-of-year review show. I actually don't know who they're going to be yet, uh, given that this is the first one we've taped. This is the last bit you would have heard. Uh, and yes, five other volumes for this month. Volume 1, WCW. Volume 2, WWF. Volume 3, ECW. Volume 4, USC. And Volume 6, coming up the end of year awards. Uh, you can find us at Wrestling20YRS on Twitter, Wrestling20YRS.com. You know what we do? You know, like to say thank you for five bucks a month for offering early access uh, to our podcast where available, or if you just want to say thank you, uh, on Patreon uh, at patreon.com forward slash wrestling 20 YRS links on the website and in the podcast description. Uh, I have been Bob Bamber. This has been Volume 5, the no- December 1996 edition of the Wrestling 20 Years Ago podcast. Until next time, goodbye.